Okay, so we're going to talk about um, heaven this, this uh, morning, uh, actually in the attributes of God, and we've been talking about the attributes of God this morning. The attribute we're looking at is the goodness of God, the kindness of God. Last week, we, we discussed the wrath of God as it relates to hell. This morning, we're going to talk about the goodness of God as it relates to heaven. And so, I'll begin this way. It's from a New York Times um, piece that was done, oh, just a couple of years ago. Seth Stevens wrote it. It says this. He begins this way. It has been a bad decade for God, at least so far. Despite the rising popularity of Pope Francis, who was elected in 2013, Google searches for churches are 15% lower in the, low, in the first half of this decade than they were during the last half of the previous one. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Many behaviors that he abhors, though, have skyrocketed. Um, the top Google search, including the word God, is God of War, which is a video game, and more than 7 million searches for that uh, this last year. The number one search that includes how-to, for instance, this gives you a, this just gives you a smattering of... of um, where humanity is, okay, I mean, this, I don't know another way to say it. So, the, the number one search that includes how to and Walmart is this, how to steal from Walmart. And that beats all questions related to coupons, price matching, and applying for a job. So, if you were part of that search group, you know, be shamed, I guess. I don't know. Um, or how did it work out for you? I don't either one. Uh, so, decade-long search trends, he says, might not reflect real developments, and the composition of people making searches changes over time. Although I think it's pretty clear that the various trends are pointing away from God. The best evidence is not probably the search data that I started with, but the long-term polling data, which consistently shows an increase in the number of people who identify as atheists or agnostics. In other words, God is not seen as someone that is good. Interesting note, what is... Uh, he said, what, he asked the question, what do you think is the most common word to complete the following question? Why did God make me? Well, here are the top three answers. Number one by far, he says, is why did God make me ugly? The next two are why did God make me gay? And why did God make me black? In the United States, he says, there is more interest in heaven than in hell. At least based on the searches, there are 1.5 times more searches for heaven than hell, 2.8 times as many searches asking what heaven looks like than what hell looks like, and 2.7 times as many searches asking whether heaven is real or whether hell is real. And the only exception to that, you know what the one exception to heaven most searched over hell is in the United States? It comes out of retirement communities. So communities that are, that are retirement pockets that they get uh, searched from, hell and images of hell and what hell will be like is searched for more in retirement communities, interestingly enough. Here's his conclusion. He says, today it's pretty clear. Jesus does not get the most attention, at least online. There are 4.7 million searches every year for Jesus. The Pope gets 2.9 million. The Kardashians, 49 million. If you add all the searches across uh, for, for 
crosses and related topics, Ms. Kardashian is still ahead. On social media, it's the same story. Ms. Kardashian has 26.3 million likes on Facebook. Jesus has a little more than 5 million and the Pope 1.7 million. It's hardly definitive proof that Kim Kardashian is more popular than Jesus or the Pope or that this country worships at the altars of the Kardashians, but the differences are nonetheless striking. Isn't that interesting? A.W. Tozer, um, oh, a little more than a generation ago, he wrote this. He says, I have for over 30 years spoken about God's goodness. In fact, I think it is the most important thing that we can know. Knowing God's goodness and knowing what kind of God He is. What is God like? It's a question that must be answered if we're going to have any hope of this Christianity at all. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon her concept of God. Our Christianity is little because our God is little. Our, our Christianity is weak because our God is weak. Our, our religion is ignoble because the God we serve is ignoble. We do not see God as He is. And then he says this. Do you ever stop and think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with Him in heaven as you are to be there? That the goodness and mercy of God, the loving kindness of our Lord, that it is wonderful, far more wonderful than we can even begin to comprehend that he brings us into such a relationship with him that he can please us without spoiling us. And he pleases us and he's pleased when we're pleased and when, we, and when we're pleased with him, he's pleased. And our common joy, the common joy we will share is that mine to be forever with him and his that I am there. And then he says... Thank God. Thank God. Let us praise the loving kindness and goodness of God forever, for of His goodness there is no end. Amen and amen is what he says. You know, Tozer's not the first to say it. In fact, over 3,500 years ago, 30, over 3,000 years ago, David will write in Psalm 16, I say to the Lord... You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And concludes by saying, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We just sang about it this morning, that in his arms are 10,000 charms. We, we, we want to be a people that see God rightly, and they not only see God rightly, we want to be people who have our, our, our minds stirred and our affections stirred. That the longings we have and the places that we're seeking satisfaction, that we would point those toward God because He so desires for us to be satisfied in Him.
Which is why I think the Bible spends a good deal of time giving us glimpses, um, drawing us forward to when we will be with Him face to face. And so I want us to consider that this morning. I want us to linger there this morning. What will it be like? What is it like to be there? You know, I hear people say something, well, listen, we can be so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. I don't know anybody very heavenly-minded, you know? I've been in hospice. I've seen people heavenly-minded there. For the most part, we're not very heavenly-minded people. We forget that this isn't all there is. We were created for something else. We easily forget that. And so I want to stir us this morning to consider more. Well, Revelation 22, it's this fascinating thing. I learned this in seminary. Revelation 22 comes after Revelation 21. Uh, wrote, I wrote, even wrote that down. And uh, it's interesting how they work together. So you have Revelation 20, and that's the sort of the, the final judgment, the millennial kingdom. It's fascinating. We've talked about it before. We'll probably talk about it again. Revelation 21 is sort of this summary. I mean, the battle's over. Uh, the, marin- the millennial reigns come to its fulfillment. The, the judgments occurred. And then what John sees at the beginning of Revelation 21, he sees the new heaven. He sees the new earth. And um, it, all of this, you know, is in the context, Jesus is, is showing this to John. He's giving John this picture so that John will write it and so that we'll get to experience what it is that John saw and, and what he feels in the midst of it. And it's this anticipation the whole Bible's been leading to. In Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus says, I am making all things new. And you find that the dwelling place of God was always meant to be with man and that, that God's going to dwell with man. And heaven comes down and earth's brought up and everything that was corruptible is gone and it's all incorruptible and it's new and it's going to last forever. And in the middle of all of it, in the middle of creation, the new creation, you have God and you have man. And it's like the new Eden, the, the, the forever Eden. Okay, now hang on to that. And then the rest of Revelation 21, it's this flyover. It's like this flyover tour, you know. I mean, here's the streets of gold, and there's the, uh, the, 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 um, the, all the glory, and the gates made of the single pearl, and the foundations, and inscriptions, and the measurements, and, you know, the, and there's no temple. You just worship something that happens all the time. There's no distraction. In the Old Testament, people went to a place to worship God. That's where the presence of God was. But what John sees is that the presence of God is accessible all the time and everywhere. And there is uh, no sun or moon, and you wouldn't notice it them even if they were there because God's at the center of everything. Now, look at chapter 22, and let's consider these first five verses. We're taken from the flyover down into the interior, a picture of, of heaven on, on the ground. And it says, um, uh, it says this, beginning in verse 1, that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In verse 1, there's this river, and it flows through the middle of the street of the city, and it, it starts at the throne, and then it flows all the way through. And I've watched Bear Grylls enough to know that if you're ever uh, stranded in the middle of nowhere with a camera crew, you, you look for water. You know, I mean, you, you look for a river, and you, you look for the fresh water of a river, and then you follow the river. Well, in, in, in chapter 22, you're never lost. And the river never stops flowing. It'll never dry up. It's bright and clear as crystal, and We've never known anything so pure, so refreshing, so satisfying. In fact, in a few verses, you're going to hear the invitation, and the invitation, and it's actually the cry of the whole Bible to come and to, and to drink and, and, and drink and drink and drink. Thirsty, always thirsty, and always satisfied. It's this eternal yearning. You know, Ecclesiastes 3, 12, that, the, that eternity has been set in our hearts. We feel it. And it's there that we'll know eternal satisfaction. It's kind of like, you know, you've been working in the yard and you're hot and you're dry and you're thirsty. You know, and your child, uh, the, the one you love the most, brings you you know, a huge glass of water, lemonade. I mean, at that moment, I mean, you, you're, you're longing for a drink, and then you drink, and then you're satisfied, and it's just one of the greatest, greatest moments. Well, you drink, and then the longing has got, your thirst is gone, but not in heaven. There's longing and yearning and satisfaction and satisfied forever and yearning forever, and it never gets old and will never be tired of it, and the longing is pure and the water is perfect, and... Can you imagine John in the moment? You know where he is when he writes this, when he sees this vision? He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's on this island, and he is surrounded by water in every direction. Yet it's full of salt. It's impure. He knows thirst. I mean, can you imagine the thirst in John that this creates? And he wants nothing more. Exiled, a stranger in the world, longing for her home, a, a thirst that can't be satisfied here. And, and in many ways, that's us. We're, we, we exist in, in the Isle of Patmos, and we're longing. And we have a thirst. Listen, we have a thirst. 
that cannot be satisfied here, a thirst that reminds us that this, this isn't our home. We long for something more. The, the ache of our soul longs to be satisfied, but only can only be satisfied in the presence of God, and it will be forever by the living water that flows from His throne. And then there's the tree of life. And you remember the tree of life? It's, in the, it's the one we meet in the Garden of Genesis. It's one of the two trees described. And the other one's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you got Adam and Eve and you know, mankind. They, they eat of one tree and then they get banished from the other. And the reason they're banished from the other is because the tree of life, it's, it's the fruit that sustains you forever. Yet, yet to live... To live forever sinful and broken and corrupted. I mean, God's, God protected us from that. I mean, have you ever thought about it? I was thinking about it this week. Adam and Eve, the first night they spend banished out of the garden. Yeah, I mean, the angel that uh, escorts them out of the garden, nothing but the clothes on their back, and the garden gets shut up, and the angels, you know, they stand guard, and and they're set out to wander away from everything they were created for. And the devastation of sin, the, the devastation of grasping at a lie. I mean, can you imagine the loneliness? It's just been overwhelming. The sadness must have been overwhelming. And while by God's grace, His common grace, we survive in this world, and there are times we even know comfort. There are times we know what we might call luxury. The, the sense of loss has never gone away. I mean, no matter how much we have or accumulate or are comforted by, we, or, you know, how much ever we achieve, it's, it's never enough to fill the loss of the, of the garden that we were created for. Ambrose, who writes about oh, I don't know, 270, 300 years after John writes this, he says, um, what would be more unbearable than a miserable immortality? And how much weariness do we find that the short stages of our lives bring us? Now listen to this. He wrote this in, you know, 370 A.D. And he could have wrote it this morning. Listen to what he says. The boy longs to be a young man. The youth counts the years leading to riper age. The young man, unthankful for the advantage of his vigorous time of life, desires for the honor of old age. And so to all there comes naturally the desire of more, because we're dissatisfied with that which we are now. And lastly, even the things we have desired are wearisome to us. And what we have wished to obtain, when we have obtained it, we dislike it. Isn't that right? Who, who does not identify with that? 
now we see is, you know, as people are made new and the tree is massive, it's like this grove of trees, the tree of life right in the center. And every month, there's new fruit, perfect fruit. There's variety, there's creativity, and you know what else? It's a time marker. I mean, it's just amazing grace. You will not lose track of time in eternity. It's not like this, you know, some you know, ethereal blur, you know, and you sit around and go, I wonder how long we've been here. I don't know. For, like for an eternity. And you know, we won't say that. It'll be marked by seasons, time, you know, marked by the fruit of the trees. We'll always know how long we've been. You know, C.S. Lewis described the curse in Narnia as always winter but never Christmas. You might say about the new heavens and new earth, you know, always spring, never Good Friday. Always spring, you know, forever Christmas. And for you snowbirds, there'll probably be some place to ski, you know. And we'll have the mark of God. Do you see that in verse 4? We're His. Remember, the, remember Toy Story? You got Woody, who's the little, little cowboy, and um, you know, it, it just, it's very poignant. See, Tom Hanks plays him, and it's, you know, it's a very poignant scene. And there's just, you know, he looks on his, the bottom of his foot, and it's written Andy on it, you know. And the Rex, the dinosaur, is like, oh, and it's even written in, you know, permanent ink. And, and uh, you know, it's, just, it's the highest honor, you know, to be, to be, to belong to somebody. And there's this one scene, you know, and Buzz Lightyear come on the scene and created all this jealousy. and um, and the funny gag about Buzz Lightyear is he believes he's actually a space ranger, but he's just a toy, you know. And he comes to realize that, and he says it this way. He says, I'm, a, I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy. A stupid little insignificant toy. And then Woody begins to exegete what it is to be a toy. And he says, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Just look over there. In that house is a kid who thinks you're the greatest. It's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You're his toy. Listen, it's not because you're an accountant or a doctor or a mom or a, whatever you are that makes you significant. You're significant because you're his, and you'll know the joy of being treasured forever. The joy of being treasured forever. In verse 5, you have the Lord and the, the, the Father, the Son is our light forever, and now in actuality, the book could end here. We've been given the picture, we've been given the foretaste, the, the, the vision of what is to come. I mean, what else is there to say after all of this? And it's a good place to linger, I'll tell you that. It's a good place to go and, and to stop and to, and to worship. And it's a good place to reset your mind and, and, to, and to stir your affections in your heart, get your heart right. It's, this is a good place to go. When you're battling temptation and you're battling the insecurities of this world, you go here, you remind yourself of the end, which is actually in the new beginning, the, the forever to come. 
drown those fleeting moments in this glorious vision of forever. We're meant to do that. But at the same time, Revelation doesn't end here. The, the Bible doesn't end here. God is so good and He's so gracious. He reveals all of these words to believers that are still alive on a broken planet and dwelt by the Spirit of God in the midst of a fallen world. He, he, our bodies are wasting away. and We know suffering. We know longing. We want to be face to face with Him. And, and so He writes more to us. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He then doesn't just take him like Enoch or, or Elijah. He leaves him to hear these words and to make sure they're written down and to make sure they get to us. Look at what he says, beginning verse 6 of chapter 22. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Five times in chapter 22, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Then in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The angel tells John, this is trustworthy, it's true, and soon, John, soon, don't lose heart, and revelations for everyone who will hear it. Don't lose heart. Keep these words, which means hang on to them. Treasure them. Bind them up. John, over, all over again, he's overwhelmed and, and longing, and he falls to the ground to worship, and the angel reminds him, Listen, I'm just like you. Not exactly, but, but don't worship me. Worship God. We, we all worship God. And then tells him again, keep the words. Listen, when you're tempted to bow down before something, you know, something in front of you, something less than what you were created for. The way you keep from that is to keep the words. Let the words wash over you. Worship God. Now, now listen to the, to the instruction and the invitation. Look at verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Now, if you went back to the book of Daniel, Daniel's told, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. The point to Daniel is that the prophecy, it wasn't for his time. It was, it was for a time in the future, a future generation. John is now writing to that generation. We are part of that generation. The time is near. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And let the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. This is an interesting verse. What's he saying? What does it mean? I think the way it's written is meant to be a command. And what John is 
what the, what's being said is this, keep on being who you are. That's the sentiment. I mean, in one sense, this is the angel declaring, look, this is it. If, 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 if what's written in this book is ignored, there is nothing else for you. There's no other warning coming. This is God's last revealed word on the matter. So for the unrighteous, the unsaved, if it doesn't stab you awake, not anything else coming. The truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and that he's coming back has been clearly revealed. There is nothing else to know. You know, for the non-mourning people in here, you know, the, the ones that set about five alarms on your iPhone to wake you up, uh, my, my wife, she has one alarm. She wants to get up. She sets the time. The alarm goes off. She gets up. Me, I set about five alarms, starting with about an hour before I'm supposed to get up because um, I don't go from sleeping to being awake immediately, all right? The, the first alarm, it, it, it rouses me, and, and I can turn it off, and I can do that a couple of times. But then I know if I turn off the last one, it's over, all right? And if I don't get up, I've, whatever I was supposed to do, I missed it, all right? No alarm coming after that. No more wake-up calls for the saved. Be encouraged. It's his call to stay awake. Live with the end in mind. Walk in who you are and walk in it now. You owe your flesh nothing. And when you're tempted, remind yourself that you don't live for fleeting moments. You live for the day. And all that day. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon and bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. And I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David. And Jesus is literally identifying here with humanity. He's, he's incarnate forever. He's, he's in a body, human body, gloriously raised from the dead, but incarnate forever. The, the bright morning star and that's the statement of his deity. The new light shines. The dawn has come. The day is here. And it's here forever. And then verse 17, the, bride, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. So I want you to notice verse 14. Do you see it? Blessed are those who wash their robes. 
so that they may have the right. So I ask you, how do you wash your robes? Well, some might read the passage and conclude verse 15 is how you wash your robes. You know, there's a list there. A list of all the things uh, not to do. A list of all the bad practices that are outside. And, and we love lists. And so some people, they conclude, you know, well, listen, the way you wash your robes is, is you keep from being stained. You, 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 uh, you know, you keep all those, th- you don't do any of those things on the list. And then, and then you make another list. And the, and the other list is all the, all the, the good works and the, and the goodness that you're going to do instead. And that's how you wash your robes. And, and that would be one way to read the passage. But I I think it's a hopeless way to read the passage. I submit to you this morning that I think verse 17, and then along with the rest of the Bible, that tells us how to wash our robes. You know what it says? It says, come. It's important to note who's saying, come. It's us. It's believers. We want Jesus to come. We're not afraid. We... Our hope and our confidence is in Him. We have nothing to fear. Everything we need, every re- credential that's required, every, every requirement to be satisfied. Come and, and drink the water of life without price. While the first part of verse 17, that's the cry of the church. The second part's the hope of the world. And what Jesus says, and what it means is it means without price to you. Oh, there was a price. There's a, a price big time. But you didn't pay it. You, you couldn't pay it. Another paid it. It's not the first time that this offer appears. Isaiah 55 uh, verse 1, it, the, the prophet, he's just outlined the hope for Israel and the suffering servant who's going to bear our sins, which we discover is Jesus. And then he cries out in 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and, and eat and come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come. Jesus says in John Chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. How do you wash your robes? Thirst and come. It's not something you bring. It's not something you do. It's something that has been done. You? You, you come thirsty. It's coming to Jesus with your thirst now and for eternity. Remember the Gatorade commercial? You had the two guys running on the treadmill, and one guy's just drinking plain old water, you know, and he, he looks like he's about to give way, and, but the other guy's drinking the water of life, you know, Gatorade. Where do you go with your thirst now? Is it the stuff that the world has and is bottled and it's selling? Or are you finding your way to living water? The offer is now. You can taste now what you will be fully satisfied with then. Brian Chappelle, he's a 
preaching professor, um, been at several seminaries. I think he's at Southern right now. He was telling a story about one of his students. He says the, the student's first sermon in an elementary preaching class, his name was Lauren. He was an African, uh, Lawrence, he was an African student. And he chose a text describing the joys we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us to our heavenly home. This is what Lawrence says. I've been in the United States for several months now, he began. And I've seen the great wealth that's here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. and listen to many sermons and churches here too. But I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. I think it's because everyone has so much in this country, nobody preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little, so we preach about heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. Do you know how much you need it? God says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods? But my people have exchanged their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 15 is this picture of those broken cisterns. And the reality is we all have them. Well, he ends, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. It's the warning. Don't add or take away from the words of this book. It may just mean revelation. It may mean the whole Bible. The canon's closed. Nothing else coming. This is the full revelation of God, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Everything you need to know is right here. Don't pick and choose. Pick all of it. It is sufficient. It is complete. When you don't, when you take out, you leave out, or you add to, or you, you know, what happens is man gets elevated. The goodness of man is seen as our great hope. We're inspired to a promise to live our best life now, then that can never be achieved. And it falls short of the glory and the hope and the promise of God. Notice at the end of verse 20, John shouts out, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. It's interesting. J. Vernon McGee knows the end of the Old Testament, it ends with the mention of a curse. You know, the end of Malachi, uh, the, the New Testament ends with a blessing of grace. And it's a blessing addressed to all, not, not just the church, to, 
to everyone the unbounded goodness and grace of God is offered to everyone. I'll end with this story. Um, a guy named Benjamin Reeves wrote a book called Living Expectantly, and he, and he tells this towards the end of it. He says this. He's talking about just, he was talking about this little fellow, he calls him. Um, this little fellow, his mother had died when he was just a child. His father, in trying to be both mommy and daddy, uh, had planned a picnic. And the little boy had never been on a picnic, so they made their plans and fixed the lunch and packed the car, and then it was time to go to bed because the picnic was uh, for, for the next day. Well, the little boy, he just couldn't sleep. He tossed and he turned, but the excitement got to him. And finally, he got out of bed, and he ran into the room where his father had already been, been asleep and had fallen asleep, and he starts shaking his father. So his father wakes up and says, what, what are you doing? What's the matter? The little boy says, well, I can't sleep. And the father says, well, why can't you sleep? And the little boy said, Daddy, I'm... I'm excited about tomorrow. Well, the father <laughs> replied, he said, well, I, son, I'm sure you are, and it's going to be a great day, but it won't be great if you don't get some sleep. So why don't you just run down the hall and get back in bed and get a good night's rest? So the boy trudged off down the hall to his room, and he got in his bed, and before long, sleep came to the, to the father anyway. And... Uh, but it wasn't long before the boy was back. And he's pushing and shoving his father and his father's eyes open. And harsh words almost came out of the father's mouth until he saw the expression on his son's face. And so he asked him, he says, well, what's the matter now? And the boy said, Daddy, I just want to thank you for tomorrow. So Benjamin Reeves says, when I think of my past and the fact that a loving father would not let me go. And he reached down in divine providence and he saved me. And when I think of all that he's done for me and I think of all that he's planning and this new thing for me that will surpass anything that's ever happened in the past, let the record show this night that in this place, Benjamin Reeves testifies, Father, I want to thank you for tomorrow. It's how we ought to live. Let the record show in this place, in this time. With all the things going around us, with all the things the world promises us, and with all the things we think will satisfy our longing, that we would stand, have our affections kindled, and our mind remember. Father, I want to thank you for tomorrow. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you do what only you can do. And so if there is anybody here this morning, and I suspect there is, that hasn't come to the place of trusting your son for life, of coming to the, the end of themselves and saying, you know, I can't fix everything that's wrong with me. I can't satisfy all the longings in me. I, I, I can't seem to do all the things I want to do and the things I don't want to do. I, I continue to keep doing. I, there's something broken inside of me, and I, you know, 
I can put that off and push it aside for only so long, but it continues to catch up with me. If that's you this morning, I'll tell you what that is, is that's the sin in your life. It's the brokenness. You're broken. You were born broken. You need healing. And God sent His Son, Jesus, to do what is absolutely unimaginable from a human standpoint. But that He sent His Son to live the life you could never live, but you were supposed to, and yet to die the death that you deserve, to take all your sin and all your rebellion onto Himself and to die for it and die with it. And he exchanged all that in you and gave you, wants to give you this morning all his perfection, all his righteousness, all his beauty, all his wholeness. The Bible says how you're saved is not by anything you can do or ever will do, but it is to come. To come to what Jesus has done. Believe that he's done that for you. To drink from those waters of life. You can begin doing that this morning. That in a moment you can know what it is. To be a child of God. To be the child you were created to be by God. To have your name, his name written on you. To know what it is to be his treasure. To know his goodness. So I pray you'd come this morning. I pray you'd believe. And Father, for all of us, would you stir our affections? Father, would you bring clarity to our minds? Would you, would you help us to know and remember this morning the longings we feel can't be satisfied here? But oh, they can be satisfied and will be. And Father, would you set our heart, our minds, our longings on you, to be with you. And so, Father, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.